This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Today's show, I speak to Cliff Lim, Director of Risk and Compliance of Southeast Asia at Dow Jones, to share deeper insights and perspectives on Malaysia's compliance landscape as we reflect on the proliferation of financial crimes taking place all around this region. Welcome, Cliff. Now, you know, financial crimes have been dominating headlines these days, haven't they? Uh, yeah, so I think essentially the, the 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 key that we are focusing on really is, I think that the topic of financial crime has been a bit more discussed, I think recently than, than I would say the last couple of years. I think yeah. there are more and more people getting familiar with this topic. People don't mm-hmm. just think, that, oh, money laundering is a very, very foreign um, topic. But now everybody knows that, ah, okay, the magnitude of this uh, from a monetary amount, the lifestyle and the way the news being reporting it, it becomes quite sensational. And I think that's where people yeah. kind of like want to follow the news to see, oh my, you mean they can have like 30 cars, 50 luxury watches, mm-hmm. 100 kind of houses, right? Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. Put all this in the perspective, people get interested and and you know you don't have to be a compliance professional to know about it now and i think with the advancement in technology as well it has changed this completely for for, for the world of money laundering when you when you look at all the stories in the press about how sensationalized you know financial crime and money laundering has been many feel that it's been a global issue but hasn't really hit our shores mm. and unlike the past one or two decades but it's been around for a very long time right it's been there it's just that the press and media haven't picked it up as much is that fair yeah i think i think that is fair um just because from 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 their perspective mind laundering has always been a big thing whether is it with the drug cartels in south america whether is it yeah. the golden triangle a bit closer to home in the Thailand, Cambodia, and uh, Myanmar border? I think those has already been long time coming, and we've seen a lot of those in movies that was being depicted. By coming to shores, you know, in Malaysia or anywhere in the Southeast Asia region, I think it has came a lot more, particularly from the one MDB um, case. I think that was yeah. the catalyst of of all this, right? Uh, and it definitely played an important role in the AML scenario that we are seeing today. So I think that's a big part. Part. Um, and, and you know, the former Prime Minister Najib is still serving a 12-year term, uh, essentially, for embezzling yes. and laundering money. So that that is still ongoing. We still see that being reported in the media on a daily basis. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say that it definitely have came to the shores of Malaysia and Southeast Asia. And, and the press really played, played such a critical role in unearthing the 1MDB scandal. It is highly complex. Mm. Uh, and the ability for the press to translate it and make it a bit easier for us, you know, laymen to consume was critical, isn't it? It is incumbent on on many in the media to take these scandals that, you know, especially anti-money laundering and financial crimes, they have a huge element of complexity here. And, and the role of press is to really distill it into ways that's easy for all of us to digest and understand, right? Correct, correct. I think you're spot on there. And I think for a lot of the men or the men on the street, uh, for them to understand this, a lot has been depicted in, for example, like infographics where you could, you know, actually see uh, from a from a magnitude perspective, like how how much the money is, how many like how many Ferraris is that equivalent, how yes. many houses is that equivalent, and it it, it I mean I think the, the there's a book uh, called a billion dollar will, uh, there's a Netflix series called Dirty Money, and there's just so many um you know spinoffs uh on the media side, and there's even a, a talk of being a movie. So I think all this helps you to show you the the importance of this and how it 
really can impact your everyday lives because this this thing in general is helping the the needs of some of these people involved but at the same time it impacts significantly uh, the economy of the country uh, yes. because a lot of these are illicit uh, proceeds and more importantly it also affects I think the daily lives of the, the, the common people as well so that is the the change. I think recently there was a movie called the not not recently but a couple of years ago there was a movie called The Wolf of Wall Street. I think that movie won a couple of awards and uh people saw it and it was actually funded by the one MDB case as well. So I think that that threw the spotlight not just you know in the Oscar world in the US Hollywood mm-hmm. but all over the world as well. So we really see you know a, an insight to this. It has deepened our conversation of the concept of thievery and theft, for sure. It's not the classic snatch thief. It's got that insidious element. And it's broadened our view about what is our asset, right? Our country is also part of our asset. And that's why it's so interesting that it takes our understanding of citizenship to another level. I think that that is important because, you know, like you mentioned, uh, taking the citizenship to another level is because when when you have this kind of case, it does affect the, the country's reputation. Uh, it does at, at, attract the attractiveness of investing into the country. Uh, so I think all this does play a part because, you know, for example, with the MDB scandal, I think that caused significant consequences for Malaysia because it damaged not just the country reputation, the economy, uh, but the, the funds was from a state-owned development company, right, which is, which is used for that purpose. And this caused a lot of outrage, uh, a lot of mistrust in the government at point of time. And that led to direct economic consequences, whether is it from the currency, whether is it on the attractiveness of the, the country, uh, because this could be used for infrastructure development, it could be used for other projects. And this aftermath has caused, I think, a lot of issues. And I think we saw it with the reaction of the people uh, a couple of years ago with some of the uh, movement that, that we saw in the media as well. Let's talk about legacy. For many of us here, 1MDB is still fresh in our minds, but it's becoming increasingly distant because of the case and with the multiple changes of government we've had in Malaysia. What mm-hmm. has been the legacy of 1MDB? Do we still see its effects of 1MDB and how we changed our approach to governance in Malaysia and across the region? Yeah, I think in, in the aftermath of the 1MDB in Malaysia, a lot of the local banks, I think some of them were, were involved in this case. Uh, they tightened their KYC or we call it Know Your Customer, as well as CDD, which is Customer Due Diligence uh, Onboarding Needs, particularly for certain clients who are considered high risk. And the high risk definition is different, for, you know, varies from bank to bank, right? So I think one thing in particular that we saw, um, you know, at Dow Jones when we work with banks is that we realized that, you know, banks would try to identify natural persons or what they call ultimate beneficial owners with more than 10% or more effective shareholding. So for you to actually find out is there anybody who owns a company uh, with more than 10%, uh, if we are unable or the bank is unable to find out this 10% or more, just because it's unknown or it's undisclosed, uh, then they will reject this client upon onboarding. This was not something that was common, I would imagine, pre-1MDB. So I think that's an interesting example to show you how banks in Malaysia are improving or strengthening its KYC processes post uh, 1MDB. I think broadly in the region that you mentioned, uh, it has caused global implications. I think we saw these funds being misappropriated um, in countries such as the US, the Swiss, in Switzerland, in Singapore, and in many other countries as well. I think for neighboring countries in Singapore, they gave the ultimate penalty where two banking licenses were being revoked by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Uh, it was Falcon Bank and BSI 
by Singapore back in 2016. Uh, so it's not just dealing with a fine or dealing with you know some sort of reputational damage. You are actually losing your license entirely, which means you can't even operate in that country anymore. So I think that is the the consequences of the the one MDB. And I think just extending on this conversation about its repercussions, uh, you know, in Singapore, there have been so many recent uh, corruption cases involving government ministers, the former transport minister, and, and so many others, right, as you say, newspapers splash with media. I wonder if the, the impact of 1MDB has also helped shed light on also these issues in Singapore, that we can actually connect the dots with what, we, what happened in 1MDB with what we saw recently in Singapore with respect to their corruption scandals as well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think it's all closely correlated, right? So the, the corruption scandals, I think recently there was unearthed. Uh, more importantly, I think there was a transnational 2.4 billion money laundering case in Singapore. I think that, that created international interest uh, on the topic. It was you know reported in widespread media, not just in Singapore, but all across uh, the world. Uh, and, and I think one of the, the, the interesting stories is that one of them was actually a founder of a Chinese gambling website. And he ran operations in Philippines and Cambodia. So he was residing in Singapore uh, and he was one of the pioneer Philippine kind of offshore gambling operator. They're called Pogos over there, uh, where basically they set up online gambling in Philippines and they targeted gamblers all across China uh, where online gambling is illegal, right? So the Philippines, a couple of years ago, because they were added onto their FedEx Grey List or the Financial Action Task Force in full, they start cracking down on all these online gambling firms because of you know criminal activities, not just from a monetary perspective. There were violent crimes, including kidnapping and murder. But it didn't stop these people from operating. They just moved their operations to Cambodia, to Vietnam, to Myanmar. And it shows that, you know, this, this financial crime thing is still very much rampant in the region. And I think the topic is just like what, uh, you know, we discussed earlier is that it becomes a bit more discussed in general with uh, the, the men on the street. And, and, you know, if you meet them at the Mamak store today, you will actually have this sort of conversation. Uh, like, oh, you know, I didn't know my laundering can be of such magnitude. I did not know you can lead such a high lifestyle. I didn't know you can afford such things and if you do it in such scale. So I think in general, from the 1MDB case, uh, that started a lot of this conversation. But under today in 2023, it's still happening. And I think the recent case in Singapore just highlights that this is in our everyday life. It's just whether do we know about it or not. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Cliff Lim from Dow Jones on financial crimes and money laundering. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show is Cliff Lim from Dow Jones on financial crimes and money laundering. But Cliff, in the earlier segment, you talk about the man on the street now. You know, the man in the street feels it and frames it like a source of text. Like there's government involved with it, right? There's someone that the government has been irresponsible with respect to 1MDB, but it's becoming more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, you're seeing so many syndicates where they, you know, set up these call centers to call you, to yeah. get money yeah. from you, and they're going straight to the, the person itself. And then they basically accumulate this cash and then funnel it through other sources and such. That's, I think, where it becomes very sophisticated going forward, right? It's not always through governments, isn't it, that you yeah. see this money laundering and financial scams take place. No, you, you're right. And I think that we saw that because I think even if you read, if you look at the news recently, a lot of uh, Malaysians will con to, to go to these countries, uh, you, know, it, you know, being tempted by high paying jobs and they were targeting the youngsters, right? And I think Malaysia has been one of the places that's been targeted just because there's a lot of 
language expertise. There's a lot of talent. Uh, a lot of Malaysians speak three, four languages, including dialects as well. So you see people speaking English, Mandarin, Cantonese, Bahasa Melayu. So that naturally has led them to be very useful, I think, in this sort of scams where they bring you to cross-border towns in the Philippines, in Cambodia, and they lock you up basically to make you do X number of calls per day to, to cause you to um, do this kind of fraud uh, cases. And I think that that evolved uh, the, the mind laundering activities. You know, it used to be very simple, uh, traceable methods. Uh, now we are seeing complex, multi-layer operations, which is what you correctly described. You know, people coming into this, giving you a call directly, asking you for details, asking to download the app. And because you are you downloaded the app, they could actually extract all of that money uh, from your bank accounts. I think that itself, uh, you know, is a big digital transformation. Uh, and, and I guess this is, we can tie it back to the COVID-19 pandemic because COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated or push us, all of us, to adopt a everything digital. We reduce our visits to the banks. We reduce our visits even to the post office. Everything is done digitally. And that is good. But at the same time, it has created more vulnerabilities, particularly among the older generation who are not so familiar with these technologies. So I think criminals, they do exploit these gaps in these frameworks and they use technological advances to conduct these illicit activities, right? That has changed significantly and is linked to the evolution of financial crime. So one, one last point that I, I was hoping to give is that what has changed during the pandemic? I think you think about things like cryptocurrencies, NFTs, fintechs, all of these were not um, available during uh, pre-pandemic, but it boomed you know, during the pandemic period. And a lot of these companies were very eager in getting more customers. And because they were so eager in getting a lot of customers, the, the KYC wasn't done you know, properly or it wasn't really enforced. And this has caused uh, you know, a lot of these crimes to then come up uh, because of these cases. And centrally, you know, so many stories about you know, technology, of course, being a boon, but in this case, also being a bane, where traceability of funds is also blurred and very murky, isn't it? That's when you enter the dark web. That's where you find it very hard to trace funds. That complicates how the authorities can basically go back to the source of the funds, right? And even try and recover them. Yeah, so it's really, I would like to think of it as a, a kind of mouse game uh, in this, right? Because the the you know while there are a lot of regulatory frameworks that are out there to deter, there are a lot of um, harsh penalties from jail term to fines to deter this. But because the the reward is so lucrative, people will still try to game it, try to get ahead of it. And I think like what you mentioned is correct. You know, as you see a lot of people doing this just because you know the, if you if you do make it, the the rewards are simply amazing. So I I guess this links back to for for us on the the not you know fighting the bad actors uh what can you do is to you know they use the advancement of technology i think that is where the regulators the banks can also do the same just because there's advancement in i think two key buzzy words that we are using today uh which is artificial intelligence ai as well as machine learning or, or money launder uh, in ml right in, in that in that sense so that really helped to do a bit more identification of suspicious activities uh, hopefully break down some complex patterns and relationships that humans cannot do. So I think that's, that's the cat and mouse game is to just to be able to do like what the old saying says, prevention is better than cure. Uh, but at the same time, you know, how do you prevent it? You really need to know uh, how these criminals think, how they do it, what sort of uh, uh, platforms they use, what kind of methods that they use. Can I challenge you on this, that it's impossible to avoid everything, isn't it? I mean, we hear about this whole 
point that now money is not channeled through banks, but there are alternative sources of private money. Mm-hmm. That it's easy to escape the regulator. That actually there are many ways to get around this. That's the big concern. And and I mean, many even say that the next financial crisis will not be through regulated environments like the banks, right? But it's through these unregulated environments, and they are proliferating and happening at a much rapid pace. That is the biggest question, isn't it? Yeah, you you you. It's really quite hard to avoid those things, just because a lot of this. New- new stuff that we are seeing, you know, the regulars are still having to develop policies to combat this, right? I mean, nobody thought that there was this digital currency and you could, you know, have, you know, not not an even an identity, just an IP address. It's, it's very difficult for you to regulate things. And I think that's where, you know, for every bad things that come out, there will be something good in, in that sense to combat that. We've seen a lot of platforms, a lot of technologies uh, trying to trace that and we even seen regulatory requirements for some of them they go to the actually ban it completely but for some of the countries who are a bit more open in this to embrace technology embrace blockchain in general what they have done is that they then put very specific regulatory requirements uh, on this and like you can't advertise this for example you cannot bring this uh, on, on, on some sort of uh, advertisement sites uh, you can only put it on your website so you, you try to reduce the people who are not so familiar with it particularly the people who are not so savvy in the digital world uh, and you let people who are familiar with it to take that risk if they want to so I guess you can't you can't protect everybody I think uh, regulatory requirements are there to prevent it ultimately there will always be people who try to do it you know if for example drug offenses that we've seen uh it has been like the death penalty for some of the countries but people still do it just because what is worth the the, the reward is worth the risk right that's the saying so i think that's the the ultimate situation we will still be playing catch up for some of these uh things because they're always one step ahead of us well, you're absolutely right right being transparent with the reward risk relation some people are willing to take the risk and bear the, the reward that comes with it I guess the question is, how do corporates, how do companies help articulate and are transparent with that reward-risk relationship? You know, how are they more transparent about their corporate liabilities? How can they create trust in the system that when they explain and describe their risk-reward relationship, investors go in with eyes wide open? Yeah, I think I think the risk reward relationship that you currently mentioned is is spot on there. And uh, investors, when they put in their money, their time, their effort commitment to to invest in a certain company, they would want to know what they're doing. And I think this links back to the corporate liability law in Malaysia. So there is this corporate liability law that was launched in um, 1st June 2020, if I recall correctly. And, and that that is the introduction of this new corporate offense for corruption. Uh, and it has increased uh, obligations on reporting entities uh, in the money laundering world. One of the key things that is on this is that uh, the, the directors of the company are also very much involved in this right so what it it basically means that under this law called the section 17a uh, a commercial organization if they commit a criminal offense if a person is associated with it uh, give any gratification of intent to retain the business or give an advantage to the commercial organization the directors controllers and management will also be presumed to be guilty of the same offense so i think if you tie that closely together is that now it's no longer just like oh somebody in a company but it goes all the way to the top 
the, the board of directors, the CEO. And because it goes all the way to the top, there is now a, a mutual interest, I think, between uh, both company and the directors themselves. Uh, and, and this is uh, towards the, I think, good governance that you, you mentioned as well. So I think for uh, corporate governance to be improved, uh, the vision and the values of the company uh, needs to be aligned with the expectations and the needs of the stakeholders or investors. And, and because if you have a good corporate compliance culture, uh, it just means that you are delivering, you know, a very clear, a consistent code of ethics that will con- that will basically reflect the value of the company. And because if you have this sort of good ethics and conduct, uh, I think from an investor perspective, you will feel a lot more at ease when you actually invest your time, your effort and money uh, into a company. You connect the dots of that transparency with accountability. And you're saying very clearly that the accountability has to go all the way up to the top. I just want to extend this conversation about accountability to, you know, members of us in the press, right? How do we, as members, put a spotlight on this accountability, on this corporate governance issues, right? How can we, especially in the business media and business press, make sure that we never lose sight of these disclosures? Yeah, so I guess from from the business media perspective is that you guys would very much uh you know do a lot of reportings and I think you know if you look at a lot of the companies that are listed uh they do a lot of quarterly reports and um you know whether is it from earnings that's the, the usual uh, but beyond that I think a lot of questions uh are being asked during these earning calls or during these uh quarterly updates. Uh, on things beyond just financial driven days. Uh, some of it is, for example, there's a there's a term now called the ESG or economic, social, and governance. And and a lot of uh, you know the media they are very keen now basically on this topic, uh, just to understand how a company is operating from an ESG perspective. And I think that today, if you look at the generic companies out there, you know, it used to be just a few industries, but now if you look at uh, banks, if you look at um, if you look at even more shopping centers, they are hiring people uh, on a sustainability areas. They are hiring people who are specifically in charge of governance, and a lot of these people are often faced to speak with the media. And I think from a media perspective, you guys do a lot of investigative work. Um, and I think the main purpose is to really uh, inform, explain, and educate your readers. Uh, correctly in that that way and once that is being done correctly i think people will be able to make better decisions after listening to some of the business media reportings going a bit deeper on this right you know there's been a huge pressure to reduce the reporting structure of corporates you know because the accusation is that you know it's short term when you start doing quarterly reporting i mean are you a proponent of us reducing the frequency of reporting to semi-annual or even annual you know, because you need this frequency to ensure accountability, but there's also this other side of the argument that when you have too high a frequency of reporting, you end up, you know, being too short-term in nature. Yeah. No, I, I guess, you know, you 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 have always the both sides of camps over here, whether is it a quarterly or some even to reduce it semi-annual or annual. But I, I think from my from in my own opinion is that, you know, things move very, very quickly these days. I think we've seen the evolution of, whether it's technology or whether it's how things are being done, the, the entire thing is always about shortening, whether it's transportation, whether it's logistics, how can I get it faster? How can I get it more effective? How can I do it more efficiently? So I think three months, you know, is, is still a good time uh, on a quarterly basis to update because that would have changed a lot, you know, whether is it from a new launch, a new solution, three months is still quite a, a, a good amount of time that people should get a, an update on because the business could change significantly. The, the direction of the business can also move uh, quite quickly as well. So I, I'm, I'm on the camp of um, it 
being reported on a quarterly basis still. That was Cliff Lim from Dow Jones on financial crimes and money laundering, who will be participating at the International Conference on Financial Crime and Terrorism Financing at KLCC, organized by the Asian Institute of Chartered Bankers and its Compliance Officers Networking Group. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.